0: Now, we've covered Genesis 19 all the way up through chapter 29, so if you've been with us over the past many months, um, for those of you who have been with us since Genesis 1-1, you know, we've covered a good bit of ground as we've gone through this Genesis study, and one of the, one of the main goals, one of the, one of the key objectives uh, is for us to really see how Number one, all of Scripture is tied together. All of Scripture is one cohesive story of God's redemption of His people through His Son Jesus Christ. And so, on top of that, seeing how even if we can just grasp Genesis and a lot of the a lot of the key aspects of Genesis and a lot of the um, a lot of the origins of Genesis, the origin of mankind, the origin of Israel, um, things of that nature that as we read through the rest of Scripture, we will start to see naturally, oh, that's connected. Oh, this is connected. Oh, those two things are connected. Oh, wow, this really helps me understand that all of Scripture really is one great big story that's all interconnected. And so, we come to a passage today, the closing uh, of Genesis 19, that honestly, as we go through it, if you're not familiar with it, uh, this is one of those passages that includes an event that even many Christians would say, what do you do with a passage like that? This is almost one of those passages that almost in a way it might make you want to turn your head and say, I don't ever want to have to read that again. And as we read this, I want to go ahead and put a thought in your mind that passages such as this, passages that we would look at and we would say, well that's kind of an embarrassing thing to include in there. That's kind of a dark thing to include in there. At the end of the day, passages such as this prove that Scripture has nothing to hide. And we as believers shouldn't be scared or fearful to hide any passage of Scripture in the dark and more or less just pretend it's not there. Because it includes something that we would say, that's at the very least, that's gross. I wish we didn't have to just read that. Every word of Scripture is God-breathed and it's in there for a reason, for a purpose. And so as we go through this today, I do want you to consider that passages such as this actually show us that God in giving us His Word and in giving us Genesis and the Old Testament, God desires for us to know where the nations came from. Not just where man came from in the creation of Adam and Eve, but where the nations came from. And God desires for us to see the depths of human depravity. The depths of sin. What will happen sometimes when we are left to to come up with our own plans or to come up with our own schemes? uh, the, The depths that we will sink to in trying to handle things the way that we think they ought to be handled. God wants us to see the sinfulness of man. And God also desires for us to see His goodness and His patience and His long-suffering. And so, keeping that in mind as well, my objective with the sermon today is for us, first and foremost, as I was just talking about there, we shouldn't be fearful or scared of any passages of Scripture. We shouldn't be embarrassed about passages of Scripture. They're in there, and they're in there for a reason. And they're in there for us to learn, and to grow, uh, and to consider. Now, specifically as we have been going through the entire book of Genesis, what I want to do today as we walk through this passage is I want to kind of, I want to kind of fold this passage back, back onto the greater narrative of Genesis and try, to, and try to draw some parallels and some things for us to consider as well. At this point in the narrative, Lot and his daughters have escaped Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed in the judgment of God because of the great wickedness that was present and that was there. Now, Lot requested, after their escape, requested that they were able to escape to a small town called Zor. And right out of the gate here in verse 30, it says, Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Now, what's ironic or interesting about that is, that's what Lot was told to do in the first place, was to go to, to run for the hills, as it were. And he said, no, 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 that's, that's too far. I beg of you, pr- I, I pray, let me stay in this little town called Zor. But then, due to fear, he leaves Zor and goes and lives in a cave in the hill, which is pretty much what he was told to do in the first place. But let's continue on with this narrative. The firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. And there is not a man on earth to come into us after the, man, uh, after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father, let us make him drink wine tonight also. To this day. So, what we have here plainly is an incestuous event that results in the two separate uh, fathers, if you will, two separate fathers of nations to come, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And so, again, we're going to walk through this and I'm going to attempt to draw some parallels uh, that tie in with the rest of Genesis thus far and things to come throughout the rest of Scripture uh, to tie this in, what we can learn and what we can understand, the things that we can consider from this event. And a question that I want to throw out there that at times I think many believers and even non-believers will sometimes use this as, a, as kind of a reason why they don't believe or here's why I don't understand God, but there are some characters throughout Scripture, and there's some people that are outside the realm of Scripture, if we look at some of uh, the the men and women that have have existed before us, that we would say that was one of the most evil people that have ever existed, or they did some of the most heinous things that people have ever heard of. Perhaps you've considered the question, why, why did God even allow that person to be born? Why did God create that person? If God knew what was going to come afterwards, if God knew what that person was going to grow up and do, why did God allow that person to be born in the first place? And ultimately, if you, if you continue to ask that question and you, and you, and you pluck out enough biblical characters, you'll eventually get to the point where you may even ask the question, why did God create Lucifer, knowing that he would rebel and be cast out and tempt Adam and Eve and that the fall would happen, why, why did God create these people and, and create Lucifer ultimately? Why why did He put that tree in the garden if He knew Adam and Eve were going to eat of it? Because He's God, He's omniscient, so Why? I'm not here to answer every single one of those why questions that you have. But what I will say is this. In those moments, that's where we as believers, our faith in a way is tested in those moments. Because in our flesh we might say, I want a very specific, detailed answer why. But biblically what we are told is a few different things, but a couple of key things that I want to point out today in regard to our Genesis study and promoting the fact that Scripture is one great big story. In previous sermons, we've looked at Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1. If you're not familiar with those passages, I would encourage you to write down a little note, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, familiarize yourself with those passages of Scripture. But when we look at those two passages, we see that before the foundation of the earth, it was God's plan. It has always been God's desire and God's plan for Christ to have preeminence in all things. Things in heaven and things on earth. And we have known that it, is, it was God's desire for Christ to redeem a people. A people that God had chosen Himself. A people set apart for His own possession that would be redeemed through the sacrifice of His Son. And those two things, really, the more that we ponder them and the more that we consider them, those two things will answer many of our why questions. Maybe not as detailed or as specifically as as we might like in the flesh, but when we understand, well, the fall, that points people to Christ, and that points to our need of a Savior. If there never was a fall, we would not need Christ, and He would not have preeminence in that way, and so the tree being in the garden, and and the serpent being there to tempt them, and Adam and Eve falling into, uh, falling into sin, and and because of that, the rest of mankind being born into sin, all of that points us to our need for Christ, and that gives Christ the preeminence in all things because He was perfect, even when He was born in a manger and lived and lived. Life as fully man. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was spotless. He was truly righteous. But yet He died for our sin. And His righteousness is transferred to our account through faith. And so that promotes Christ. We were told in Genesis chapter 3 that the head of the serpent would be crushed. Well, the one to crush the head of the serpent, that great serpent, Satan, Lucifer, the one to crush his head is Christ. If Satan would have never rebelled and been cast out of heaven, then there would be no head of the serpent to crush and Christ wouldn't have preeminence in that way. And so I know there's a lot of Uh, introduction here and a lot of forward here. We're not yet walking through what happened with Lot and his daughters, but consider those things because that even that will help us understand a few things as we go through this passage. And when we come to a passage of Scripture that that might be difficult for us to digest and to consider, it helps if we go back to the big picture ideas that we do know plainly and we do know clearly and we say, okay, well, this is... This is a truth from Scripture. This is a truth from Scripture. Does that help me understand this passage in any way, shape, or form? So consider the preeminence of Christ. And also consider the sinfulness of man. Adam and Eve did take of that tree. And they did eat. And after that, they had two sons, Cain and Abel. And shortly thereafter... The first murder took place. Cain killed Abel. And Cain was punished by God. Cursed by God. But yet Cain was was still able to to reproduce and to to multiply. And we've talked about that that ungodly lineage of Cain. That ultimately in the lineage we're given in Scripture. it, uh, It ends up with Lamech who was the first to take two wives. And he boasted of killing a man. Was proud of killing a man. And then we also have the godly line of Seth. And from that line comes Noah. But the sinfulness of man. Cain kills Abel his brother. Why? Because God accepted Abel's sacrifice. But didn't accept Cain's, Because his brother did what was pleasing in the sight of God. And he didn't do what was pleasing in the sight of God. So the obvious solution of course was I'll kill my brother. You see the sinfulness of man in that. And that godly line leads to Noah. But what do we remember about Noah? Well, he's the one that built a ark because there was a flood coming. And why was there a flood coming? Because of the great wickedness of mankind upon the earth. And God judged the world with a flood. And the only ones that were spared was Noah and his wife and Noah's three sons and their wives. They were the only ones that were spared. The rest of mankind, the rest of creation, consumed in the judgment of God. The sinfulness of man brings judgment. Here in this, in Genesis 19, we have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed because of the great wickedness, the rampant wickedness within those two cities. And the only ones that were spared was Lot, And his two daughters. Now his wife briefly. But we know that she looked back and she was turned into a pillar of salt. And so in those pictures. In each of those. In the fall. You have a picture of God's grace. Because Adam and Eve were told they couldn't go back to the garden of Eden. But it was so that they couldn't go back to the tree uh, of life. That they would not live eternally in their fallen state. So you see God's grace in that. He didn't consume them in judgment that day. He allowed them to live. They just couldn't go back to the garden. And they have sons, Cain and Abel. And even Cain, he wasn't wasn't killed and, and wiped out by God the day that he killed his brother. He was cursed. He was banished. But he was allowed to live and to multiply and was a great leader after the flood noah and his three sons noah sins gets drunk passes out in his tent one of the sons ends up being cursed but even that even in the, the flood you see the judgment of god the wrath of god but you see the grace of god in the fact that noah and his three sons and all their wives they were able to be saved and from noah's three sons and their wives the rest of the earth was populated Squeeze the Tower of Babel in there real quick. The Tower of Babel, a direct rebellion against God. God destroyed the Tower of Babel, confused the languages, but God didn't wipe out mankind. He just dispersed mankind and confused their languages. Sodom and Gomorrah, destruction, but you see God's grace and the fact that Lot and his family was spared. We actually had a whole sermon, we looked, we considered at length. How in the world was Lot considered a righteous man? And we came to the biblical conclusion that it was only through faith. That there was the presence of faith in in Lot's life. That because of that faith, he was justified before God and counted among the righteous. So with all of that, At the forefront of your mind, God's grace, His mercy, the preeminence of Christ over all things, the sinfulness of man, the grace of God. Let's look specifically at this event. Lot's two daughters come up with a plan. And it it could be that both of his daughters thought that all of the earth had been judged once more by God and that they were the only survivors. It could be that the daughters literally thought... There was no man left on earth at all whatsoever. That it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah that got wiped out. It was all of creation. So it really was just them and Lot. But they come up with a plan. And it should be obvious to us that the fact that they decided we need to get him drunk. That this act was frowned upon even at this point in society. The fact that their plan included getting our father drunk to the point that he's not aware of anything going on shows to us that this was, and they knew this was a shameful act. But nevertheless, this is their plan. And their plan was successful. Both of them become pregnant through this act, through their father. And at that point I would like to bring this out. This entire act would not have been possible were it not for God's grace in saving Lot and his daughters from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's God's grace that this event even has an opportunity to take place. This is the result of God sparing Lot and his family and now they're in this cave in the hillside and there's, there's even an element of God's grace that these people are still alive and yet they commit this offensive, perverse act. And, and, then, and then you add another layer in there and you say, well, well, God is, God is the one who, <clears throat> who brings life. God is the one who, who makes life. And so ultimately, God is the one who decided that this act is going to, to be successful. This act is going to result in two sons. And so now again you might be, well, why? Why? Why would God let this plan work, let alone be carried out, but work? Why? And then you say, okay, well, what two sons did come from it? Moab and Benami. Moabites, Ammonites. And then you and then something else might click in your head, and you say, Well, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they It's not like Israel was like good buddies with the Moabites and the Ammonites throughout Israel's history. In fact, the Moabites had something to do with with Israel being led off into Baal worship. So, the, the two sons that came from this event, it's not like they're going to be great allies of Israel. And it's not like they're going to be godly nations. They're going to be pagan nations. They're going to be godless nations. The Moabites and the Ammonites, what what good could possibly come from this? And in fact, if God is God and He is all knowing, then He has to know that the Moabites are going to lead the children of Israel into Baal worship. Couldn't God have just nipped this one in the bud? Why would why would God want all of this stuff to come about? Why would all of this be included in his plan? So maybe at this point, your wheels may be turning as we continue on. We'll come back to that, but we'll we'll continue on. Their plan was successful. Two of Israel's enemies really are born out of this event. And one of them, the Moabites, specifically lead Israel into Baal worship later on. So any interaction that Israel has with the Moabites and the Ammonites throughout history does not bode well for them. The Moabites and the Ammonites are not godly nations. They're not god fears. But even all of this is connected (coughs) with God's grace and His patience in allowing the, the, the saving and the redemption of Lot and his two daughters out of this. Back to tying this in with Genesis. We know that Abraham at this point has been called... Abraham, Lot left with him, but God promised Abraham, I will give you a son. You will be the father of a great nation. And he promised, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Hold on to that. We're definitely going to bring that one back up again. But God told Abraham, I will give you a son. Now, a couple of quick facts about that. For those of you who haven't been here with us going through Genesis. At the time that the promised son came along. Sarah who was already barren. Was way past the age of childbearing. And Abraham Abraham was a hundred years old. But yet God still miraculously gave them a child of their own. And that's important. God said I will give you a child. And he did. There was a time where Abraham and Sarah tried to come up with their own plan. And that plan worked. And Ishmael was born. And we talked about that when, when we were at that particular section of Genesis. But just by way of a reminder, the Ishmaelites came from Ishmael. Those also were not friends of Israel. Those also were not allies or cohorts of Israel. They were enemies of Israel. Okay? But God tells Abraham, I will make you the father of a great nation, and in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That is the promise given to God. Or that is the promise from God given to Abraham. God is capable of giving life, producing life, spreading life, creating life, whenever He so pleases. As we've read multiple times from Romans chapter 4, God who calls into existence things that don't exist. You say, Caleb, why are you bringing all of that up? Because I want to put that up against... The desperation of this plan. The two girls look at one another and they say, "There's no man. there might be no man left on earth. It's just Him. That's our Father. We've got to come up with a plan. We know that ultimately, if that was the case, if they literally thought that there was no man left on the face of the earth, that was a misunderstanding at best. <clears throat> but ultimately, if God, desired, if God desired for Lot's lineage to be carried on, if God desired for Lot to have offspring, then it would be done. God is capable of accomplishing all that He intends. When we take things into our own hands and say, we've got to make something happen, we've got to produce something, we've got to come up with our plans... You can rest assured that it's coming from a lack of faith that God truly is sovereign and a lack of faith that God can do as He pleases on earth and in heaven. So just look at the the, the contrast between these two things. God who is perfectly capable of creating life, Adam and Eve, creating all things, speaking things into existence. God who tells Abraham, I will give you a son... Even though you're a hundred years old, Abraham, and even though your wife who is barren is, is also past the age of childbearing, I'm going to give you a son of your own. That God who brings into creation or brings into existence things that don't exist. think about that up against this situation where Lot, Lot's two daughters just say, we've got to do something. It's up to us. We've got to carry on the lineage we've got to make sure that there's more offspring. When God produces the offspring of promise, when God makes good on all of His promises, it always results in life. It always results in, in blessing. It always results in, in praise that, that we return back to Him. But any time in, in, <clears throat> in Scripture, and you probably say even in your own life, when we just get so dead set on I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to come up with something, it typically ends in ruin. Or it ends in, it ends in something that produces more strife or more anguish. And it's no different here. The Moabites and the Ammonites are born out of this incestuous event. So consider that. They took matters into their own hands, but God gives and grants children as He sees fit. And then beyond just the aspect of children... God gives offspring and builds nations according to His promises and His will. Man produces offspring and builds nations according to their designs. And at the end of it all, if you want to look at all of human history that way and say, well, God has a plan that He's accomplishing. God has His people. God has His nation Israel, true Israel that He has. And then you've got man who refuses to acknowledge God and they're doing their thing. And they're trying to make their own nations. And they're trying to be great in and of their own power. They're doing their own thing. At the end of it all, how do we think that's going to end? More specifically, we don't have to think it's going to end a particular way. We know how it's going to end. But we as believers would do well to acknowledge that if God is sovereign and He has perfect authority over all things... And He does as He pleases with the inhabitants of earth as in heaven. And He has full reign to accomplish His intended purposes. Then we don't ever need to fall into that trap of thinking, I've got to do something. I've got to do it my way. We've got to come up with a plan. We've got to do this. We know that at all times, at every second of every day, at every moment of history, it is God who is working all things according to the counsel of His will. And we can rest in that. And we can find hope in that. And we can find confidence in that. Another thing to consider, (coughs) before they actually escaped Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot offered up his daughters to the men who were seeking to sexually assault the two others that had come to visit Lot that night, And to tell him that he needed to escape. All the men of the city went to Lot and said, Where are the two men that came into you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. And again in the Old Testament, biblically speaking, to know, we're talking about sexual intimacy. So the men of the city came up and said, Bring out those two men that we may know them. Sexual perversion. And Lot says, do not do this thing, I have two daughters that have never known a man. Do unto them as you see fit. And here, we see Lot's own daughters more or less sexually assaulting him having perverse, grotesque relationships with him. The same thing that he had offered up his daughters for, they are now doing to him. Making him so drunk that he doesn't know what's going on. All because of a part of their plan. And we see this happening here. And again, this might be the point where you say, yeah, Caleb, that's why I'm saying like, this is one of those passages of Scripture that's just like, this is really in here? I see the looks on some of y'all's faces right now. Like, see, I'm, I'm the preacher, so I get to see all of y'all's faces. You just get to see my face. So as I'm preaching, I see the looks on people's faces right now that are like... Yeah. Scripture has nothing to hide. God's not hiding anything. And if, if we look at something like this and think, oh, well, this is just... this is bad. Do we not know about the perversion and the wickedness and the evil that goes on in the world today? Are we really going to sit here and act like, oh, well, because this is the Bible, it just, it just makes me cringe and it just... It... This is the depravity of man. In fact, any time that we hear of a sinful act, anytime that we're exposed to a sinful act as believers we ought to have we ought to have some sense of where we recall and we pull back because sin is disgusting sin is vile God hates sin and we ought to hate sin so yes here in this instance, the daughters carry out their plan. On back-to-back nights, they get their father drunk. They lay with him. They know him. And each of them receives a son through this. Now at this point, I want to bring in another account from Genesis. After Noah and his family had gotten off the ark, Noah got drunk. And passed out naked in his tent. At the end of that we know that Ham and his line they received a curse. But the other two sons walked backwards and, and covered their father's shame. And this was right after the world had been judged in a flood. This event here in Genesis 19 takes place right after Sodom and Gomorrah had been judged with fire. And it's only Lot and his two daughters that escape and find refuge. And now we find Lot drunk. Except there is no, to use this phrase, there is no saving grace in this aspect. They're not seeking to cover their father's shame or anything of that nature. They're seeking to Lay with their father to carry out their plan of procreation. But wrapped up in all of this, if you say, Caleb, this just sounds like a huge mess. Yeah, it looks pretty messy. You say, Caleb, I mean, there, there's just a lot going on here. I mean, God just destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He saved Lot, which is great, but now Lot just got his two daughters pregnant and he didn't even know that he got them pregnant. Like, he was. So drunk that he had no idea what was going on. And that was the... His daughters came up with that plan? Caleb, there's just a lot going on here. And there is. And wrapped up in all of this, we see the depravity and darkness of man. And we also see the grace of God. You say, Caleb... Where is God's grace in this mess? Well, first, Lot. We know from the New Testament that even the New Testament saints looked back on Lot and said, Righteous Lot. Lot was rescued and saved from Sodom and Gomorrah. You see a picture of God's grace there. The Moabites and the Ammonites, they come about as a result of this event. You say, Caleb, you've already said the Moabites and the Ammonites. It's not like they were buddy-buddy with Israel. And it's not like they ever did anything great for Israel. I mean, good gracious. The Moabites introduced Baal worship to Israel. Led them into it. So what good could possibly come from that? Remember God's promise. Abraham, I will make you the father of a great nation. And in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Even the Moabites. Even the Ammonites. Even the Ishmaelites. In fact, if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, Ruth was... Anybody remember Pop Quiz? Where was she from? She was a Moabite woman. God's grace is such that it takes the vilest of the vile, the most wicked of the wicked, and calls them righteous. And makes them sons and daughters of the Most High. God's grace is such that it takes the vilest of the vile and the most wicked of the wicked and says, not guilty, righteous, clean. It's good for us to know narratives like this because it's good for us to know where we came from. You say, well, I'm not a Moab. I'm not an Ammonite. I didn't come from all that. It, how, many of us, uh, how many of us had to do a family tree for like a class project at some point in middle school or high school? Anybody? I know I did. Something about, I can't remember if it was Coach Watson's class or somebody else. But anyway, he taught social studies for a little while. I see some Pinewood people in here. I digress. If all of us looked deeply into our family tree, like the history of our family, the roots of our family, we would probably unearth some wickedness. We would probably unearth some vile acts and deeds within our family history. But here's the thing. Each and every time we look at sin, we should say, that is vile. That is wicked. If we just look at ourselves and we take an honest assessment of our life, the things that we think about, the things that we feel, the emotions that we have, the desires that we have. Because it's real easy to say, well, I don't act on all those things. But do you think them? Do you feel them? That's vile. That's wicked. You say, Caleb, it's really not that bad. I feel like everybody struggles with it. When God is our standard, When the holiness of God is our standard, and then we consider our own hearts and what we desire and what we think about and what we feel, it's vile. It's wicked. See, the temptation is to look at something like this and say, oh, well, those those were just some terrible, wicked people. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the grace of God is such that it takes the vilest sinner... And declares them clean, righteous, son or daughter of a holy God. Even even those of the Moabite nation, even those of the, the, the Amorite nation, even those of the Ishmaelites. Even those of the Canaanites. You go through all of the enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. God told Abraham, and you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And at the end of Scripture, towards the end of Revelation, we actually see what? We're given a picture that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered together. And Catch that. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. An innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation is gathered and they are singing, Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the end result of all of this. If you say Caleb, this is grotesque, this is perverse, this is Ugh. I agree with you. There's there's perversity in here. There's wickedness in here. But guess what? This is two human daughters with their human father. I'm a human. You're a human. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve fell into sin, but Adam was the representative for all mankind. So all mankind after him is born into sin. All mankind after Adam is in need of salvation. And when God promised that the head of the serpent would be crushed, that pointed to our Savior, our salvation. When Noah built the ark, the ark points us to our Savior, salvation. When God called Abraham and said, I will make of you the father of a great nation, and you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, and I will give you a son, a the promised son. That points us to Christ our Savior and our salvation. But everything in between, everything on the earth that takes place, even the life of Abraham, even the life of Sarah, even, even the decisions of Abraham and Sarah. Even all of that stuff. It reminds us of the sinfulness of man. The sinfulness of man. The lack of faith that we have in God. But God's faithfulness to His people. And God's faithfulness to keep His promises. So if you say, how in the world does this point us to the grace of God? Because a Savior is coming. And even those with connections to the Moabite nation or the Amorite nation or the, the Ishmaelite nation, connections to all of the people from all over the globe, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter that that in the Old Testament, well they were they were the enemies of God. It doesn't matter. All who believe will be saved. But look from where they came from. This was this was an incestuous origin. It doesn't matter. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Through Christ, those who were once enemies are made to be God's friends. Through Christ, those who were once far off are brought near. And so, to wrap up, go back to Romans 9, which is where we had our Scripture reading from at the very beginning of the service. (coughs) Why? Why would God allow some people to be born? Why does God bring some people into existence? Why did God? Why did God make Lucifer knowing that Lucifer would rebel, be cast out of heaven? He put that tree in that garden. God put the tree in the garden, not Lucifer, and he knew that that tree would be used as a temptation to get Adam and Eve to fall. Why would he bring the Moabite nation? Why would he bring the Ammonite nation? Why would he bring them into existence through this terrible wicked act how does any of this point to Christ and what's the point of it all what we have to understand is God can do with his creation as he sees fit now that sounds like and I saw many of you start nodding your head when I said that and that's good and I'm not trying to challenge you That is a statement that when most pastors or most Christians make that statement, the vast majority of people will just automatically say, yeah, amen. Why would I disagree with that? God can do whatever He wants with His creation. Amen. Amen. God can bring into existence whoever He wishes to bring into existence. God can take out of existence whoever He wishes to take out of existence. God can raise up a nation. God can tear down a nation. And He only has to appeal to the counsel of His own will. God does not look at us ever and say, you think this is a good idea? Hey, before I do this, I need your approval. You think this is right? You think this is good? God operates according to the counsel of His own will. We started in verse 9 earlier. We'll start there again. This is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, when Isaac uh, and Rebecca received children, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau, I, I hated. Now, in a nutshell, to be very brief with that, we know that the godly lineage, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and then from Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob's name was actually changed to Israel. Esau sold his birthright. He became the father of the, the Edomites. And they also were uh, enemies of the people of God. But before they were ever even born, God told Rebekah, here's what's going to happen. The older is going to serve the younger. Why? Because God is in charge. God decides what, what happens. God decides who to raise up and who to tear down. God has the authority to do as He sees fit. So then the, the response to that might be, Well, to me, to me, that seems like God is unjust. So Paul actually addresses that. He said, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's, or injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. One of the main reasons I wanted to read this passage of scripture is because Pharaoh is another character that we might read the scriptures and we might think, why did God even let that Pharaoh be born? That Pharaoh who so hated the idea of letting God's people go. That Pharaoh who thought that, that his gods were greater than the one true God of Israel. That Pharaoh who, who, who held the children of God in bondage and slavery and mistreated them and, and thought that he himself was a god. Why would God allow that, that man to be born? Well, the question's answered. For this very reason, I have raised you up. Full stop. So that means not only did God allow that particular Pharaoh to be born, God is the one who placed that particular Pharaoh in his position of authority. God says, For this reason, I have raised you up. That I might show my power in you and that I might be proclaimed in all the earth. For this reason, I raised you up so that my power might be on full display. How was God's power on display in Egypt? The raining down of the plagues and ultimately the killing of the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. And God says, this is the very reason that I raised you up, Pharaoh, that my power might be known. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. God can do as he sees fit with all of his creation. God can raise up people to power. He can tear them down. God can harden people. God can soften people. God can do as he sees fit. And I want to point that out because when we get to these questions of why, why did God allow this to happen? Ultimately the answer is this, He can do as He pleases. Do we trust and do we have faith that whatever God does is perfect and is right and is good? All of those Egyptians during the plagues, they were exposed to God's power and God's might. They saw the plagues, they were victims of the plagues. They saw the power of God. But yet it was only Israel who left Egypt and worshipped God. And God is the very one who raised up that Pharaoh and put him in that position of power. So, so ultimately, who was over this plan of these two daughters and, and their father Lot? Who was over this saying that this will result in the Moabites and the Ammonites? It was, it was the will of God. You say, why would God will to bring about people who are going to be enemies of His nation and of His people? Why would God will for that to happen? So that Christ will have preeminence in all things. So that Christ will have preeminence in all things. Because in the Old Testament, we know that it was specifically the line and the lineage of Abraham, ethnic Israel, circumcised on the eighth day. We know that they were the people of God. But through Christ, it is people of faith. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation that are the people of God so that Christ will have preeminence in all things over all the nations. All the earth is His inheritance. And His bride is made up of people from every tribe, tongue, nation. Now, I do want to close out with this. He has mercy on whomever He wills. He hardens whomever He wills. And you will say to me then, why does He still find fault? For who can resist His will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? We might find ourselves sometimes asking questions that we want specific answers for. And the answer from God, from His Word is this. Who are you? To answer to God. Who are you to demand of God that He give you all the details and all the answers that you're seeking? Who are you to answer to God? the gentiles what was the result of god making his power known to pharaoh what was the result for his people israel saw that's our god the god who rained down the plagues the god who took the firstborn of the egyptians the god who parted the red sea that is the god who calls us his that is the god who looks at us and says mine So desiring to show His wrath and His power so that His grace may be more clearly seen on the vessels of mercy. And if God decides that in many various different ways He will display His wrath and He will display His power so that His vessels of mercy will see His grace more clearly, then so be it. And we ought to rejoice in that. We say, how in the world can an act like what we just read from Genesis 19? How in the world does that fit into God's overall plan? How in the world does that fit into things? How are we supposed to see God's grace? How are we supposed to see Christ in that? Because in those vessels of mercy, there are people not just from the Jews, but from the Gentiles. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All of the wickedness of man, all of the sinfulness of man, even the sinfulness that's going on in the world today. God is redeeming people out of that day in and day out, day in and day out. He has mercy and compassion on whomever He wills. No matter what the origin story is, no matter what the history is, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So when we come to a passage like Genesis 19, verses 30 through the closing of the chapter, it's a lot to digest, it can be a lot to take in, But when we start to look at it and say, how does this fit in with the bigger themes and the bigger narratives of Scripture? It just may be that we are led to think of the things that really help that puzzle piece fall into place. There's There's a lot of things that in the flesh we look we say, that was ugly. That was messed up. That was twisted. There's a lot of sin recorded for us in Scripture. And every time we see the sinfulness of man, we ought to be driven to the grace of God, the mercy of God through Christ the Son and understand the sovereignty of God over all things that He is endlessly, tirelessly working all things together for the good of His people and for His own glory. Thank you all for being so attentive. We'll close in a word of prayer.